next day what was found on the ground was blood stains and a bullet shell or bullet shells clearly he was murdered and she'd look across the street and she would see people that she knew had organized or been involved in or had prior knowledge of her husband being murdered he was a crook he accepted money and favors from murderers and from drug traffickers i'm andrew rule and this is a life and crimes Today, we're going to look back in time at Griffith, heart of the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area and a hotspot for organised crime. And by organised crime in Griffith, we actually mean the Calabrian Mafia, variously known as the Family or La Familia or Drangida, all names which refer to the same group of Calabrian organised criminals who essentially migrated en masse from one part of Calabria after World War II. Back in the early 50s, I believe there was a flood in a place called Plati in Reggio Calabria, and virtually the entire district upped stakes and came to Australia, and many of them, belonging to a handful of big families, settled around Griffith with other satellite settlements in Sydney, western suburban Sydney, in Melbourne, Shepparton and Mildura. But the heartland for the Plati people was Griffith. And there they settled on the orchards and the vineyards and the, the, the small horticultural irrigation blocks that had originally been cut up uh, back after World War One. I think, for returned soldiers, you know, as part of soldier settlement. But as the irrigation schemes were established, the blocks became more valuable for horticulture. And so the people of Plati from Calabria, many of them from uh, farming backgrounds, peasant sort of people, they were able to take up the irrigation blocks around Griffith and around Mildura and Shepparton and farm them very successfully to grow, you know, traditional crops and so on. But they brought with them, apart from their knowledge of how to grow things and how to work hard, because they're very hardworking peasant stock who are tough people and not frightened of hard work, they also brought with them their entrenched organised crime structure, which is called the Honoured Society or those other names that we use, La Familia. It's heavily family-based. It really comprised basically maybe 10 or a dozen families uh, where they came from. And these families tended to stick together and to intermarry so that it reinforced the ties they already had. The ties of loyalty were reinforced by the fact that people were actually related to each other. And they became a very tight-knit group who were extremely hard to infiltrate. And they observed what is called, of course, in mafia circles, the code of silence known in Italy as omata. And these people were perfectly placed when the culture of the rest of Australia and, in fact, the rest of the Western world threw up a market for cannabis, for marijuana, because they realised immediately that they could grow marijuana on their um, vineyards and among their tomato crops and so on, and make a hundred times more money than they were making 
out of conventional crops. And so what we had in the early 70s and mid-70s was a cannabis boom to such an extent that locals in Griffith, other local people who'd been around a long time uh, and who were not impressed by this, they used to call cannabis calabrese corn. And it is said that at certain times of the year when the crop of cannabis was brought off and bundled up and dried and taken often in packages and boxes to the bus station and to trucking depots and possibly to the airport, that you could smell it everywhere around the town and locals would say, oh, yeah, it's another crop's come off. And so that is the background to the story we're going to tell today because what happened in the mid-70s was that various local people, and by this I mean the older established uh, families who'd been around there for a long time, some of them not only resented the rise of what they saw as this Calabrian crime syndicate, but they thought that it was leading to other forms of crime, that it would corrupt the local police force, it would corrupt local youth, and so on and so forth. And while many people kept their complaints to themselves and talked to each other behind closed doors because they were nervous of upsetting their neighbours and so forth, one man in particular, Donald Mackay, actually took steps to draw official attention to what was happening in Griffith. And Donald Mackay was a leading local businessman. He was a respectable hard-working operator who ran a furniture store in Griffith. He was married and I think had four children. Uh, He was a man in his early 40s at the sort of peak of his life when he decided to take an interest in the rise of organised crime in his hometown. And in fact, he decided to run or he threatened to run for parliament and there was obviously enough sentiment behind him that he became a political threat to a very cosy arrangement whereby the local member, one L. Grasby, was supported heavily by the Calabrian bloc, by the Honoured Society, as we call it, who handed uh, bloc votes to L. Grasby in return for specified and unspecified favours done by Grasby politically. Grasby of course, um, later became a, a minister in the um, Labor government and was hailed widely as the father of multiculturalism. But Grasby's legacy is actually a very dark one. Apart from his fashionable endorsement of multiculturalism, he was profiting from his relationship with the Calabrian organised crime groups. The showdown between respectable Griffith townspeople and the Calabrian crime group came to a head in the tragedy of mid-1977 when Donald Mackay, the thorn in the side of the Honoured Society, was, as we know now, shot dead in the heart of Griffith. In fact, he vanished. His body was never found and, and has never been found. But Donald Mackay was shot and his body removed early in the evening on a weeknight in Griffith from a hotel car park. He'd been into the hotel after 
closing his shop. He'd had a couple of drinks. He'd bought some wine to take home. He walked out to the car park in the dark of the early evening. It was winter and so it was dark early. And he was going to get into his minivan, which he used for his furniture business, when uh, clearly he was shot dead because next day what was found on the ground was bloodstains and a bullet shell or bullet shells. Clearly he was murdered, but his body was not found. His body was never found. And so shamefully it was put across that perhaps he'd run away. Shamefully it was not investigated immediately as a murder but as a missing person, which was an outrageous thing because it was clear that uh, he had become a victim of foul play. But it suited powerful interests both locally and politically to dismiss it, to brush it under the carpet and treat it as a missing persons case while they hoped the publicity would die down. The publicity did not die down. The mafia figures who had collaborated to organise this hit, this cold-blooded murder, miscalculated the depth of reaction to what happened to Donald Mackay. They planned it very well. Not that you have to plan things that well when you have the entire local police force on side. The Griffith Mafia had cultivated virtually every local police officer. And so we had police who clearly getting more money than they could earn legitimately, spending it in ways that indicated that they had extra money. They were very close with the Honoured Society members. And in fact, on the night that Donald Mackay was shot dead, half a dozen members of the Honoured Society made very sure that they were seen in public in Griffith so that they had alibis for the occasion which of course is another indicator that they knew exactly what was going to happen and which indicates that they were part of a conspiracy to have Mackay killed. The terrible thing about this, apart from the obvious thing that a a good man was killed, is that these local police played a part, an active part, in providing alibis for the conspirators in the case. The conspirators in the case, as named in a later Royal Commission, were four men called Sergi. They shared the surname of Sergi, S-E-R-G-I, and a couple of others. One was the notorious Bob Trimboli, known as Aussie Bob Trimboli. Another one was one of the Barbaro family, another prominent family that have become well-known as members of the Honoured Society. Now, to be fair to everyone not all Sergis are crooks. Sergi is a very common name. It's a particularly common name in Calabria, where these people came from, and it is a very irresponsible smear to suggest that somehow all Sergis are connected and all Sergis are crooks. However, it is fair to say that a lot of crooks are called Sergi, particularly around Griffith, and that prominent in this group that organised Mackay's murder, according to the Royal Commission, were Tony Sergi, one of the many Antonio Sergis, Tony Sergi. He was a man then in his 40s. He was running a very prosperous winery that has become more and more prosperous as time has worn on. Interestingly, he was the son of an old man called 
Joe or Giuseppe, Giuseppe Sergi, regarded by many people as the actual godfather in the area. Giuseppe had come out with his family, that is Tony, his son, and I think six daughters, back in the early 50s. And it's widely held that Giuseppe actually, in his own quiet way, had his hands on the reins of power. He and another man who uh, lived in Griffith were the older generation who pulled strings in the honoured society. But the ones that people in the streets could see were the next generation. That was Tony Sergi, one of his cousins, Dominic Sergi, known as Mick. Tony went on to make his winery, I think it's called Warburn Winery, much bigger and better. It seemed to be an unaccountably profitable winery. It became very big. It established a lot of shedding, a lot of vats, a lot of land, a lot of bottling plants or whatever it needs, and became a major tourist feature of Griffith. And Tony Sergi had the cheek to point to bullet holes that had been shot into the walls of his shed, saying, you know, poor old me, they're shooting at me. In fact, this was locals who were expressing their disapproval of him after the murder of Donald Mackay. But of course, the locals were in fact far too law-abiding to actually be, you know, deadly vigilantes. They were never going to shoot Tony Sergi. They really were just expressing disapproval, which he sort of knew because he half smiled about it. And indeed, he basically treated the locals with a sort of affectionate contempt. He named a couple of the labels of his wine gossips and the other one rumours. It's a wonder that he did not produce one called Alibi because he was one of the ones who made damn sure that he was seen in a restaurant in Griffith in the very hour that Donald Mackay was shot dead. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. And he was with a local policeman who was well-known, a fellow called Keach. And there were th- at least three other policemen in Griffith who were heavily involved with the mafia figures. And those other three policemen were in fact jailed for their involvement in corrupt activities. Not jailed for very long, interestingly. There were several bent police involved in what happened at Griffith and elsewhere, but the chain of corruption went all the way to the police commissioner's office in Sydney. The commissioner in those days was a guy called Slippery Fred Hanson. His nickname indicates what people thought of him. He, in fact, had his own cool room in the Sydney fruit and vegetable market where the mafia identities who basically ran the markets could give him free produce that he would be able to use as he saw fit. 
probably he was selling it to restaurants or whatever. There'd be some some angle. He also accepted a very fine shotgun from Aussie Bob Trimboli, who is notoriously one of the leading organised crime figures of the 70s and 80s, a man well known to most of our listeners. There were at least three policemen who were named and later jailed in connection with what happened in Griffith. They were Kenneth Ellis, Brian James Borthwick and John Francis Robbins. Those three police, to their eternal shame, accepted money and other graft in order to make life easy for murderers and drug traffickers. They effectively uh, collaborated and connived in the murder of Donald Mackay. And it is only fair that their descendants should know that. It is not their descendants' fault, but they need to know that their grandfathers collaborated to kill somebody else's grandfather. Now, one of the reasons we're doing the podcast on Griffith this week is that Mick Sergi, Dominic Sergi, has just died in Griffith. Now, Mick Sergi, like his cousin Tony three years ago, he got to be in his early 80s before he died and he got to be the grandfather of 15 children. He, like Tony, his cousin, had a prosperous life, big houses, cars, family, friends, the whole shooting match. He, in fact, got everything that Donald McKay did not get because Donald was killed in his 40s. His children, the McKay children, grew up not having their father. They grew up with their mother, Barbara, very sad and depressed about what had happened to her husband. I once visited Barbara in Griffith on the 20th anniversary of her husband's disappearance and she had stayed in the town, which showed great fortitude and grit. But she said to me that it was very hard because even after all those years, she'd walk down the street to go shopping and she'd look across the street and she would see people that she knew had organised or been involved in or had prior knowledge of her husband being murdered. Her kids grew up in Griffith knowing that too, that they would be going to school with people who were related directly to the people who had conspired to kill their father. This is, in my view, one of the great stains on Australian public life that it was so clearly obvious that Donald Mackay had been murdered as part of a conspiracy and yet because of police corruption and some political corruption and, you know, corruption to a high level in New South Wales and federally, these people were never properly pursued. They got away with murder in as far as they were never prosecuted over Donald Mackay's abduction and death. What did happen later was that the actual hitman that they had engaged, one James Baisley, was convicted in Victoria of conspiracy to murder Donald Mackay. He wasn't actually convicted for committing the murder, but he was convicted for conspiring with a gun shop owner in Melbourne, a guy called George Joseph, of conspiring to murder Mackay. 
those two people, the hitman and the gun shop owner who supplied the pistol, had dealt with a mafia middleman called Frank Tazzoni. And Frank Tazzoni probably assisted Basley with shooting Mackay. Basley was a small man and Mackay was a big man and it is widely held that when he shot Mackay in the car park at Griffith, he probably needed uh, another man there to help lift the body into the boot of a car and remove him to the spot where they got rid of his body. Now, no one alive probably knows where that body is. It's hard to know if someone does, but there's every chance no one does because Baisley died within the last two years in Melbourne as a very old man. And despite the fact that detectives would occasionally visit him and ask him if he could drop a hint about where Donald Mackay's body was, he never did. He was an old-fashioned crook who believed that you never talked about anything. He'd never put his hand up for anything. And he just would not relent in any way. And there's, there's no doubt that he knew something about where the body had went or where he last saw the body. The other people involved are also dead. George Joseph is not. He's the old gun dealer who helped broker the hit, but he was in Melbourne and he had nothing to do with the actual execution of Mackay. And it's unlikely that he knows, but sometimes police go and visit him and have a talk to him in case it turns out that he'd heard something that would be useful. The other person in the middle of this, of course, is Frank Tazzoni. Now, Frank Tazzoni was arrested later in the late 70s, early 80s, and he was persuaded to become a witness for the police. He gave information in order to save his own skin. That information convicted Baisley and uh, Joseph of conspiracy, but it did not convict any of the mafia people. Uh, Tazzoni was able to serve a fairly minimum amount of time in jail in return for his cooperation. And when he got out of jail, he quietly left Australia and went back to his home country of southern Italy, where he set up shop in a town as uh, running a garage. And it was there in the late 80s that my former colleague Keith Moore, a very fine investigative journalist, English-born journalist who worked for many years at the Melbourne Herald and later at the Herald Sun. It was there that Keith Moore tracked down Tazzoni to his home in a remote village in southern Italy and was able to interview him. And Keith then wrote a book which has been reprinted a couple of times and uh, has been a very popular book. It is called Crims in Grass Castles. And it's a book that was published way back in those days, but it's also been republished in recent times. And that provides a lot of the detail of what happened and what didn't happen. If listeners would like to hear more from my former colleague, Keith Moore, please go back to the episode or the series of episodes that we called The Calabrian Crew, where Keith and I talk about Tazzoni, Trimboli, and all the bad things that happened in Griffith and elsewhere in the 70s and 80s. Of course, Keith couldn't be frank about everybody because a lot of people were still alive and the issue of defamation 
comes up and there's many things that can't be said that probably now can be. And as these people die off, we uh, revisit this case and point out that they were involved. Let's not miss Al Grasby. Al Grasby, the bent local politician who became quite an important um, government member, he ultimately had a statue struck and uh, put up in his memory by misguided people, in my view, who thought he should be remembered as some sort of great political figure for being the so-called father of multiculturalism. He was a crook. He accepted money and favours from murderers and from drug traffickers. And the idea that the Australian taxpayer shelled out tens of thousands of dollars to create a statue of him is just one of the most outrageous injustices ever perpetrated on the Australian public. And indeed, if there were any justice, someone who thinks that all decent lives matter should pull down El Grasby's statue and if not throw it in the river, perhaps melt it down and put up a statue to Donald Mackay, an honest man, a good husband and father, a decent citizen, a man who had the courage to stand up for what was right and died for it. This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.